0: we yeah. Welcome to CYC Podcast Discussions on Child and Youth Care, episode number 174. I'm Wolfgang Vachon. Today, I'm excited to be speaking with two of the founders of Taking It Global, Michael Friedrich and Jennifer Corriero, to talk about an exciting new project that CYC Podcast, Taking It Global, and a sub-project called Rising Youth are about to embark on, specifically a partnership to be collaborating and co-creating a series of podcasts with uh, young people, across the country with multiple hosts over the next uh, three or four months, and then we'll see where it goes from there. So really exciting. And to start, I would like you, eat, Jennifer and Michael, to introduce yourselves and, and who you are.
1: Oh, Well, thank you so much for having us um, as collaborators and also as guests on your show. I'm so delighted to be in this collaboration. My background in this work started as a youth at the age of 19, which was 20 years ago. Uh, so I'm one of the co-founders of Taking It Global. I was in my first year of undergrad at the time. And Mike and I met in 97, 1997. And we worked on a lot of projects involving technology and the voice of youth. And we had asked ourselves, what would we do if anything was possible and when we came up with this idea of, of taking it global, he was just like, well, and I remember distinctly having an exam about leadership that Monday, and he's like, we should do this thing. <laughs> so, I mean, part of my most important part of the introduction today is just that I'm, I'm on this journey as a social innovator, as someone who really cares about the power and potential that young people have even after aging
0: out of these.
2: Indeed, indeed. <laughs> and I think for me, my experience growing up was really growing up as technology did, as, as personal computing did. I was born in 1982 and had a Commodore 64 when I was three years old, uh, only recently surpassed as a best selling computer of all time. And I think growing up in that context where, you know, the blurring between consumer and creator, you know, learning how to program, uh, and then in middle school, the World Wide Web came about right around the time where I met Jennifer. And I think what really got me excited about this idea for taking it global, this like building this global community for young people uh, was that we could connect young people around the world as students. You know, I was in my last year of high school. I was 17 when we launched the organization. And, you know, learning about the world, learning with the world, that was the same year the United Nations set out the Millennium Development Goals in 1999 for the 2000 launch. And so for us, it was also thinking about how can we use social issues as a hook, as a way for young people to engage with one another, to collaborate on solving these really important problems uh, together and really better understanding the world through the eyes of our peers globally. It was the first time that was ever possible. And
0: what about technology made you think, this is the, the way I want to do this?
1: The internet was growing uh, around that time. And there were also a lot of dot coms launching and focusing on profit and so for us, a lot of invention, a lot of problems are solved in, in creative ways. And especially the power of um, different communications technologies and, yeah, with information uh, being more readily accessible. Young people are not just consumers of information, but actually we have the power to write the narratives. And that was the, the main thing is that through technology technology. A lot of messages can be shared and a lot of young people don't recognize the power that they have. And so that's why we really committed ourselves. I ended up doing my undergrad around the role of youth in society and my master's in youth led action in an international context. And I was able to interview a lot of youth around how they're creating change and and technology can just really help to amplify, help amplify voices, amplify connections. But at the same time, it's not the answer and there's a lot of hype in the tech industry uh, and in that space as if it is the solution, but it's really how we use the tools. And so is our education system teaching those literacies? So those are the types of problems that we just haven't stopped attempting to address each day in a different way.
0: You've been going for 20 years now. This is like you just celebrating twenty yeah. years. Congratulations! <laughs> That's ahead. amazing. That's amazing. Of course, there's been tremendous shifts in in technology in those twenty years. Uh, there has always been young people at the front of that change in in technology and in many, many other aspects of of the world. Of course, what are some of the the highlights, if you will, that that you can reflect back on over those twenty years of taking it global?
2: I think in the early days, one of the things that we also tuned into was you know obviously as Canadians we're pretty lucky. We take our connectivity for granted Uh, and we have an initiative working in our most remote communities where even as Canadians, we're reflecting on the fact that even here at home, that's not necessarily the case. But in 2003 and 2005, there was a a summit called the World Summit on the Information Society where the world's leaders kind of convened to look at investments and strategy to really bring the internet and technology everywhere. And as part of that, we worked with young people all around the world, especially in in, uh, developing economies to really advocate for not being left behind in this like information revolution. We organized a series of national information society youth campaigns that were funded by the Swiss government uh, at the time, Swiss Agency for Development, where young people advocated uh, to world leaders to make sure that they were empowered as creators, as not just as consumers, but as, yeah, creators, entrepreneurs, leaders in these digital spaces. And that created a lot of funding opportunities for youth, especially in, you know, many African countries and Asian countries to ensure that they were included in this wave. So getting involved in these United Nations processes, it began with the World Summit on Sustainable Development as well. Now, today we have young people in Spain at the COP conference. You know, we have I think 35 students from over a dozen countries representing their views there. So, I think that's been one of the big milestones for us is not just talking about these issues and taking local action, but how do we influence global policy as well?
1: And I think that it's around creating spaces for meaningful participation for youth voice and and for youth to be supported in taking action. And so
0: one of the projects that you are currently doing around that is called Rising Youth and that's the project that we're going to be collaborating on. Could you tell me a little bit about what Rising Youth is and some of the phenomenal work and the amount of people that have been impacted oh, well, by this Rising is, Youth?
1: This project is a bit of a dream come true and what it is in in the scope and size of it, it's a series of community service grants so Rising Youth Community Service Grants. And so we are supporting, uh, we have so far already given over $2 million to over 2,500 youth in Canada between the ages of 15 and 30 to lead community service projects. And their budget ranges could be $250, $750, or $1,500. So it's a lot of grants, it's a lot of change uh, that is being ignited in many places and connected across.
0: And just to put this into perspective, So when you say you've given out 2,500 grants, What's the timeline of those 2,500 grants you've been giving out?
1: So in the past year and a half? Yeah, 18 months. And that... that <laughs> I know, that's kind of a... 18 <laughs> months.
2: Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's kind of a huge... And the Government of Canada um, has been the supporter of this. So, so this is something, if you're wondering where the money's coming from...
2: Yeah, there's an initiative called Canada Service Corps that was kind of kicked off last February, 2018. And it's a, really a coalition of about 15 organizations that we're a part of. Many of those other national organizations have designed programs young people are going through. And our effort, our contribution is really building on our leadership at taking a global and supporting youth social innovation. So rather than design an experience, we said, well, why don't we offer grants so that young people can design their own initiatives to respond to what they feel like their communities really need.
1: We've had, by the way, um, over 30 impact partner organizations across different, all the provinces and territories. And we've had over 375 organizations refer youth to apply to the grants. So this is something that, you know, we're not lifting alone. We have also an incredible team, um, a very diverse team. And and that's something when we think about the program design, really believe in the power of collaboration and sort of working hand in hand and learning together. And that's also one of the reasons why we're excited to partner with you with the CYC podcast, because we think that this mode of communication and technology is a very powerful way for for people to learn. And we're really excited that through the series of podcasts that will unfold in the next few months that there's going to be an opportunity for all of us to learn more from the youth that are being supported. And and and, and that's also what we're trying to address when we're talking about supporting youth voice and, and that the 20 years of trying to say young people need access to funding, also mentorship opportunities, also opportunities to meet one another. And so that's happening in many ways locally. And I think that also through this podcast, I mean, I'm excited about who might meet each other, right? Even just through the podcast. And we've been believing in the power also of impact storytelling in different modes of storytelling so those are all different aspects of what rising youth is about um, ultimately supporting and, and celebrating and nurturing youth leadership through projects and it's not happening in the classrooms as a requirement but we are also inviting a lot of students whether it be in high school or you know just today i, I had a call to confirm our partnership with yukon college to really do extra outreach there so on different campuses just trying to figure out how to support the leadership and learning journeys of youth
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we've um, one of the things I'd encourage your listeners to do is follow us uh, on Instagram at Rising Youth TIG because we're posting those stories almost every day, but at least a couple times a week uh, highlighting different alumni. Um, I was mentioning before, one of my favorite examples is actually from Manitoba. It's um, two friends who were really concerned about the friction in their relationship with the RCMP in their community and their smaller community. And so they organized an event called Cops and Ballers, where it was kind of a, a fun day of paintball and pizza and kind of getting to better know their local RCMP office officers, Uh, we ended up posting a little video about it on Instagram that you can check out. So uh, the other thing is, especially in the Northwest Territories, we've really been trying to focus on underserved, underrepresented communities and really focusing, especially on the North. Uh, One of the big challenges that especially indigenous communities face there is just access to the land, you know, the cost of going hunting, the cost of going fishing. And so I know in the Northwest Territories, we supported several projects where community members or elders have actually taken youth out on the land and shared teachings and really helped to provide access to that cultural knowledge that otherwise wasn't possible just because of the costs of, you know, renting a skidoo or renting, uh, you know, the equipment required or purchasing equipment needed.
1: Other types of projects that have been inspiring for me relate to the arts or or sports from mural projects. People are able to use the funds to purchase, you know, paints and supplies and involve people in um, mural projects with a message. Also sports uh, tournaments uh, like lacrosse tournaments or picking up jerseys, you know, pennies um, and just being able to get more play uh, encouraged in different ways. We've we've partnered also with different groups that might encourage people who are involved like in, in drop-in centers or, or things like that uh, to um, extend their pro- programs or even other uh, national service partners have helped to promote, like Boys and Girls Clubs have helped to promote the grants and youth are coming up with ideas. So maybe they take part in, in a structured program or maybe they're informally attending a drop-in center, but there's an activity that they might like to, you know, get a whole bunch of board games or maybe create a game. So these are the types of projects also that are exciting because they're extending what interests them. And um, most recently at the design exchange, our Rising Youth uh, projects were featured. And um, it was really interesting because that exhibit, we curated technology-focused projects. And so one of the students organized a hackathon. And so that was, that was there's a few hackathons.
2: We've mm-hmm. had actually just two in this last month. So really enabling the kind of community events that young people want to see. But often one of the biggest challenges is just with the responsiveness of, our, of funding that's out there. Often you need to apply months or you know a year in advance. Sometimes the grant cycles are set so far in advance. And so we really have tried to design this program to be as responsive as possible. You know, we our commitment is that people hear from us within a month, and often we're able to do better than that. Uh, and we've also been working with several organizations like the Students' Commission of Canada, where this year we kind of connected our grants to their Canada We Want conference. So during that conference, students were brainstorming ideas for their communities, and then we were able to help them, you know, turn those into proposals, submit the proposals, and even announce approvals, you know, by the end of that four day conference for some of them.
1: Another partnership with Chiefs of Ontario earlier in 2019, there were some some ideas. So we shared project uh, examples, projects led by Indigenous youth from different communities and then uh, had little brainstorming workshops. And we able to give some early feedback um, to to different youth in their network. And so. Um, I, I think even projects that involve, let's say, fabrics and youth creating like regalia that, or ribbon skirts, for example, and then gifting them to different elders. So those are other types of uh, project approaches, I think, that are very meaningful and also can bring up, yeah, different conversations and making even access to, in some cases, even your own culture more feasible. And, and that's the other thing, too, is that our team members are encouraging. So if someone submits an application and they're missing information, it's not an immediate decline. Like we're on the side of the applicant. We're trying to help them succeed. And so these are really life skills. Um, there's been uh, one mural project that uh, we had supported a, a grant. We, we see a lot of alumni leveraging this uh, letter of approval to be able to then access other funding and build other partnerships and so that's where I also get very excited and and encourage like other institutions to invest in giving like in-kind like acts you know where there might be a fee but maybe they can give something in kind so that people can stretch those dollars further
0: yeah <laughs> it's, there's so, so yeah there's so much i mean when i when i go through the the website and i look at all the projects and and when we talk about you know sort of possible guests, you know, it's it, it, the, 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 the diversity, the range, the range of interests, the, the topics are things that some potentially would never even occur to me and, and that's really driving. Um, one of the things that, you know, I, I've, I've worked a lot with, with young folks who are often quite uh, marginalized and minoritized, and, and stigmatized, and um, might not have the, you know, a, a community supporting them or, or, or advocates supporting them. And so, this idea of, you know, in, in in working with young people, we often see a certain demographic of young people who are able to access. You know, resources and able to access these, these funding because they have the language, they have the, they know the people, that sort of thing. How does rising youth actively engage people who might be a bit more minoritized or marginalized or, or not be tapped into existing structure?
1: Mm-hmm. No, and this is something we think about actively, like, you know, even myself as a white woman with living in the South with access to post secondary education. Just access to certain opportunities that, I, that I've had have given me a lot of privileges that also influence who, you know, as funny as we were thinking even about the criteria, we, we were concerned about having certain outreach where, you know, if any Canadian is eligible... Because uh, I've been a jury member for a lot of awards, I myself w- received uh, certain uh, certain awards. I I have experience from when I was younger applying for things and understanding that that feeling of also rejection and then still like applying, but then having having on something on paper that might um, stand well in a in a granting program. So so we actually we took an active effort not to actively promote among those who might be. I'm not saying they're not eligible, but um, that already have so many privileges and advantages and, and let's say the highest marks in, in, in the class or the ones referred by the principal or, or the teachers. And what we've done is um, we, we, we have... Uh Actually, we've reached over 80, 85% of the grants are led by youth who identify as underrepresented in one of the different areas, whether it be visible minorities, youth living with disabilities, LGBTQ, LGBTQ2+, or uh, Indigenous, you know, First Nations, Inuit, Métis. And, and one of the things we've done from the start was to look at, you know, even in terms of who we hire, where we base those positions. So hiring people from, from, from the different communities that we seek to reach and also with the, the partnership budget. So we've actually given budget to other organizations to help do the outreach themselves, like Rainbow Coalition and Yellowknife as an example. Um, they've done a lot of outreach at different festivals or, or collaborating on movie nights, doing things that are that are fun. I mean, we've done a lot of grant writing workshops. And, you know, if you position something as a grant writing workshop, who's, who's going to attend, right? So a lot of the outreach that our, our own team members or partners have done, uh, sometimes our team members will just simply attend events, whether or not they belong to that particular community, but sort of show Going up And and also with, with humility. And there's also even a, a self checklist on the website, like if you're trying to do a project for a community that you don't belong to, like these are some self reflection questions to have. It's not like presume that you know what is needed. And so I think that's that's the thing is how are the opportunities presented? And then also in the structure of the application process, we're constantly interrogating ourselves with, you know, what are the barriers that might prevent youth who are facing more systemic barriers, like just with that anti oppression letter? So that we can look at how we can structure opportunities in a way that supports youth who face multiple barriers. So, for example, if um, in terms of even how you transfer funds. So, in some communities that we're working with, like many many First Nations and um, Inuit communities that we've been working with, we're, we're 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 working through different channels. Like, there's not even a single bank, for example, or youth may not. Yeah, just if 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 it would require certain certain things and there's ways that we're we're working around those barriers for them to not only hear about the grants or also if they were to organize their projects in some case how can we help navigate their access to the space to be able to do what they need to do um and so it's been very organic we even held back on certain mainstream outreach um, and promotions because we were afraid that we would be spending too much of our time Turning people away. <laughs> yeah. So I mentioned like UConn College is an example of, of a post secondary partnership, but we've actually held back on too many post secondary partnerships in that sense.
0: Nice. One of the things that I've said for many years is that the best skill I ever learned was how to write a grant and so the fact that you really support that and you you encourage and you facilitate those workshops I wouldn't have been able to do you know half the things I've done in in my life and the things that really feed me my arts practice that really motivates me and wakes me up excited in the morning I'll, I'll, of course along with my teaching excites me every day as
2: well <laughs> I think the more important part of that too is that in, in this case they're very likely to be ex- approved and I know in our first grant application we were rejected and our idea was too ambitious from this foundation name but um, it, it's it's interesting because I think that that first approval really is a huge boost and we've seen this from, from a lot of people not only to your your own confidence but also as a, a credibility that you are receiving the support and um, and that, you know, it's rising youth, but it's also the government of Canada. I mean, to be able to say that your project is being supported uh, has been a big boost for a lot of youth and then being able to secure and grow their initiative. So trying to provide that support and that responsiveness is really something that is not too available out there. That kind of turnaround, time Absolutely.
0: One of the things that the, the three of us have spoken about. And it's, and it's it not at all unique to Canada, but it's ever present in Canada, although sometimes we forget about it sitting here in Toronto, is this idea of language. And so we've talked about what does language look like when we live in this multilingual country with two official languages in the federal level and multiple official languages in, in different territories and, and provinces. And we've been trying to discuss and sort out what that's going to look like. And I would, I'd like to raise it. Why, why does it matter that we think about language in a multilingual country? You know,
1: in some ways, uh, when I... Yeah, I mean, this question as, a, as an Anglophone, I'm obviously not really qualified to answer. I can, I can passionately... Um, understand, even though it's not through my own um, lived experience, how linguistic diversity is so integral to connection to identities, cultures, um, histories, like our shared, our shared histories. And as as an example, you know, in Nunavut with Inuktitut as one of the official languages, we do have our application um, available in Inuktitut. And as an example, there are a lot of youth who are are not fluent in English. And so part of it is a way to be accessible, also, also respectful, but it's definitely a huge challenge. Like, to not, not be able to speak the language. We also talked about, you know, with Francophone and our team in Montreal who I'll be visiting in a few uh, weeks and excited to, to meet um, some of the alumni and the projects there. Um, like there's certain cities like Montreal where the bilingual conversations happen more frequently, where people will flow in and out from English to French and they're understanding both, which is the kind of idea when, you know, the concept of, of in Europe, a lot more countries um, have that multilingualism more fluidly like a lot of people speak five languages easily as a baseline I have a lot of European French that speak so many languages. And so that's why, while I'm not one, one of the multilingual individuals, I, I respect, like I profoundly respect the impact that language has on our worldviews. And, um, and it's definitely a challenge in, in administering the program and and creating resources to the program, like even sourcing content, the lang- the the first language uh, that someone speaks, you know their mother tongue, that will influence even their their own vocabulary and um, the meanings of of words and and how it relates to the sense of community, you know, because ultimately these projects are about creating a sense of community, supporting a sense of community, so it's It's a beautiful thing if people can incorporate language. um one of the projects highlighting the issue of Islamophobia in Quebec in particular. I was just watching a documentary, and there was a little flow between not only French and in English but also arabic and And so I, i've I've always enjoyed um, also the sounds and, and tones and, and, and expressions through different languages. And, and as I said, it links to where people come from. So the more that that can be incorporated in, in the projects, you know, I very much encourage that, even though I myself am not personally well-versed in it. And I recognize that as like a limitation. And so that's one of the reasons why it's so helpful to have, to, to create opportunities for project, you know, champions and for people to be able to do outreach in different languages. And, and that's the amazing strength of our team.
2: And I think as we look to this podcast, in particular, I think it's going to be a lot of fun to do podcasts, at least in French. But who knows? Maybe a uh podcast issue, maybe uh, you know, an Arabic one. So we'll definitely be exploring that um, through the podcast, and maybe inviting youth to share uh, in French and also in other well, languages. Well, even
1: Angeline, who's from Iglulik, uh, she's she's heading back uh, to Ottawa, but um, so she's living in Ottawa from Iglulik. And one of her first uh, recommendations for outreach was just get on the radio, you know. And so, I, and that's where I think um, also in the homes, uh, depending on, yeah, just different fluencies. It's nice to be able to have, for people to have conversations in their homes, in their, in their
0: mother tongue. Absolutely. I'm really excited about the idea of having multilingual podcasts, having French podcasts as part of CYC podcasts, having, um, podcasts that flow between multiple languages, which sadly I will not be hosting because I do not have that, that flow. Um, try as I may in, in French and Spanish, I'm nowhere near ready to host a conversation around that. And I, and I think it's really exciting for us to, to start to consider how else we listen and what does listening mean? And listening beyond just the, 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 comprehension of words, but the nuances, the beauty of, of language. And, and so I really encourage listeners. As we start to move towards some of these podcasts that some will be in other languages or in multilingually, I encourage people to stick with it and to, to listen through those moments when you might not understand.
1: Actually, that, that brings up, though, a really good point, And I appreciate you saying that because it's true that sometimes when we don't understand, we might tune out. Um, I personally might self-doubt um, as well. Um, you know, I struggle even if I'm trying to learn or or, or express, but, uh, but there's a lot of emotion that, that can come through. And, and, uh, so I appreciate you sharing that message.
0: I'm really excited to be working with you, Jennifer and you, Michael and all of the other hosts. And we're, we're going to be facilitating a conversation, um, in the, in the coming, uh, coming weeks, months with, with the, the different hosts who will be part of this project. And I want to thank you for the invitation to, to partner with you. and. I'm really grateful for the work that you've done over the past 20 years and for the next 60 that you will be doing at least.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, thank you as well. And, and to your listeners, I know a lot of you are practitioners and a lot of you work with children and youth and, you know, it is a life um Lifelong commitment, lifelong journey. Journey for me. I remember when I was starting for youth, by youth, with youth, and then it was like, well, what happens when we're not youth? And one of the main reasons why I decided, you know, when I was when I was transitioning. So from the age of like 25 and on, I was questioning and not taking those spaces like representing my personal experience, lived experiences, but rather as um, someone I call myself an intergenerational bridge. Um, so for the, for those of you who are intergenerational bridges, I I, um, I hope that some of the communication and conversation and podcasts with our alumni is like delightful in your work. And I, I hope that we can continue to invite like more partnerships. Like I hope our partnership together will inspire even more um, bridges for, for young people leading the way and into the other phases of life beyond. <laughs>
2: all right. See you all in the future episodes. Look forward to yeah the stories we uncover together. Bye bye for now. Au revoir.